Hi, everybody. AJ here to introduce our guest, Tevis Trower. She's the founder and CEO of Balance Integration, the author of The Game Changer's Guide to Radical Success. And she knows that building a great organization begins with cultivating true greatness from the very top. Tevis is a pioneer in optimizing corporate cultures and has been heralded as corporate mindfulness guru for the new millennium. Tevis has coached high performers and top executives for from powerful organizations ranging from Disney to KKR in leveraging their most precious asset, their humanity. A sought after, get them thinking, laughing and interacting speaker, Tevis has headlined executive events with Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, Pier 150, Bloomberg, Conscious Capitalism and Google, and has been featured in media outlets like Forbes, Fortune, CIO, The New York Post, Yoga Journal and more. Um, as my old boss and good friend, I'm so excited for you to listen to this incredibly inspiring episode. I hope you enjoy. Hello, hello, and welcome to Everybody's Bad With Money, where we share stories and get real about personal finance. We make money talk fun. I'm Amelie. And I'm AJ, and we have a really special guest today, my old boss, Kevin. <laughs> We're so excited to have you on the podcast. You're um, a big mentor for me. I've learned so much from you and I can't wait for our our listeners to get to know you. Well, don't make me weepy at the start. (laughs) You know, I, I, my, my aim is always in life is to make somebody else cry. (laughs) Cry with joy, right? Cry with joy. Oh, always. Yeah. Um, Hi, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank I'm, you so much. I'm I'm so excited. I can't wait to see what you guys unpack in me. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of unpacking, um, we would love to hear your money story and then kind of how that led you to the path you are today. Um, you know, we believe that our beliefs around money stem from childhood. So as far back as you're willing to take us, we are interested. Oh, I am an open book. My um, so I came from a working class family, kind of blue collar, in um, Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and my parents were the black sheep of the family. Like they both went to grad school. My dad became a Montessori teacher. My mom um got advanced degrees um in nursing and respiratory therapy, but. That, that, that blue collar kind of second gen like immigrant story around money was, um, was pretty present. Um, there was a definite sense of it's your job to worry. Right? Mm. <laughs> you should be very, very worried. And if you're not worried, then you should be worried about not being worried. Right. right? Yep. Yep. And, yep. Um, what, <laughs> What was kind of interesting is um, this was the 70s because I'm 5 million years old now. And um, my parents were one of the first of all my friends to separate and get divorced, right? Mm -hmm. And my mom kind of felt it coming before it happened. And she really had a strong sense that my dad was not going to keep his end of the bargain right which he didn't and Mm -hmm. so she set herself around making sure she had a career that would support two young kids and so that means that she wasn't around a whole lot because she was preparing right she was like I gotta be the one who gets promoted to the head of the department or the assistant head of the department right I gotta be the one I gotta be the one I gotta be the one and so what that modeled for me was a couple things. One is that um, hard work will keep you safe, right? Mm. Two, um, if you're not worrying, then you should be worried about not worrying. Right. <laughs> and point three, I think there's this other thing too, um, that, that my family almost held people who had privilege or money, right? Power, privilege, money, or part of the establishment um, in a mixture of both kind of reverence and distrust, right? Um, which I don't think is that uncommon when you look at class assumptions, right? I think yeah, that's actually certainly not, really, yeah, uh, common. And um, and 
when I went to grad school uh, for business, a lot of times people thought, for one thing, it was like the Alex P. Keaton of my family is the assumption, right? That I was like, like the business person. But actually the reason I did it is because I kind of understood that to be involved in power structures in the world is the best way to help the world. Yeah. And um, so, so I get into business and because I didn't come from um, a heavy imprint of what um, the shoulds are, right? Because I was from a blue collar, but liberal creative Montessori teacher kind of family, black sheepy. Um, it gave me a lot of freedom and it, it gave me a lot of freedom both for self-expression as well as for questioning and for really watching um, above and beyond any fears I, I might have had about how I was received. It really let me be true and be present to the moment. Um, but, but, but it also brought, brought some money stuff too, but I feel like I've been talking too long. So I'll let you interrupt me and prod. I love it. Um, first of all, I've heard your dog bark so many times on calls and I can't believe that your dog is like eight pounds. <laughs> I just <laughs> saw your dog. I just saw her. Oh my God. I was imagining like a big pit bull or something. <laughs> I am in shock right now that that dog produces that bark. Small oh but mighty, man. Small That's how mighty. we roll. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's, I think what's really fascinating is that, that there is that natural and I think that that's really common, like what you were saying, you know, in a, in a working middle-class family of like a little distrust towards privilege. Yeah. And then you end up working with like fortune 500 C-suite executives who are earning multi, multi thousands of dollars, six, way six figures to the millions. Um, how does that, how does that bridge happen? I, I know I'm kind of jumping a little bit, but I just find that connection so interesting of, um, of, uh, in your, in your thread from your childhood. I find it really interesting too. <laughs> <laughs> I like, as you asked me that question, um, the mosaic really becomes clear, right? That, um, because I did so many wacky things because I have cousins who are factory workers and race Harleys, right? Because, um, because I'm a beauty school dropout, because I served in the U.S. Army, right? Because I worked for the Speaker of the House, um, because, because I um, uh, was presenting to the board of GM by the time I was 30, right? Because I dug some ditches in Nicaragua on service projects, right, for the poor, right? Um, like, when I think about... Um, how that correlates to my money story, it really becomes a question of worth, not money. Yeah. Mm. Right. And the more people we are exposed to, who we allow ourselves to be human, to take the mask off with, and to simply be present and to value their worth and to value our own, then we start to understand that whatever we think is happening in money or privilege has nothing to do with worth. It's just a story. And that's Absolutely. what's really given me the confidence to, um, to move through the worlds I move through. Yeah. It's really fascinating. I, um, I, and I, and I, it's definitely was correlated to my self-worth. I, I struggled in my early twenties to mid twenties, with like talking to executives, which was obviously so funny when I was a project manager and in these rooms and I was like, and, and the feedback was like, oh my God, she does not know how to talk to C-suite. Um, and it's something that um, I've, I've worked through in my own life. And it's just so interesting. I'm sure a lot of people can really relate to that, that like, I mean, even working at Lululemon, the intimidation with my managers, like not feeling like I could be myself around them for a really long time and feeling like I had to like, that they were above me in some way. Um, and that's so amazing that, that, that just wasn't at a very young age, that wasn't an issue for you. Well, <clears throat> 
I think that I'd be lying to say that 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 there haven't been a lot of moments that I haven't had to dig deep to remember that, right? Um, for one thing, um, there's a lot of talk, I think, about the generations and how the boomer assumptions were really strong around the patriarchy, command and control mm -hmm. approach to management, rule by or management oh. by um, intimidation, right? Um, and a friend of mine has looked at this and he said, look, the Xers were too small. We were too small a population to really take that on. Mm. And so we got kind of co-opted. Like we tried to hold our ground, right? But we didn't have the numbers. You guys have the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, and for me, um, having grown up in a Montessori household um, and having grown up with a very... Um, um, spiritual and like an ecumenical mom. We had people from every culture through our house. We celebrated Seder. We um, had had uh, conversations on Ramadan. Like like we, you name it, it was going on in my house growing up. And um, but when you walk into those mahogany corridors mm -hmm. with art that might as well be hanging in the MoMA. Yep. And you bump into that air, right? You bump into to, to, to the class assumptions that you don't belong here because you didn't go to Harvard, mm -hmm. right? You don't belong here because you've never been at the golf club I've been at, right? Mm -hmm. You don't belong. Like when you bump into that, you better damn sure know who you are. And not yeah. only that... But you better know what humanity is really about. Because if you forget that in that moment, go to the elevator. You have nothing to say, right? Yeah. yeah, and it really does come back to worth. It's like remembering your own worth in those moments, despite the fact that you may not have their credentials of the people sitting in that room. Like inherently as a human, you have worth and you're there for a reason. Yeah. So I think it's it's a really good point. I'm so interested in the trajectory of your life. <laughs> you like briefly, briefly talked through all these different jobs that you've had. Can you take us through like how you navigated life and all of these different experiences that you've had? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> do we have enough time? I don't know. We're going to do a six part series. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Please. <laughs> part one, Nicaragua. Part two. Yeah, yeah, part <laughs> one. Um, so, um, God, that's such a good question. I have always been fascinated by people. And when I was growing up, the big brouhaha on the news was what was going on in Central America. And because mm -hmm. I was majoring in history and taking a lot of uh, political science and I was taking a lot of religious studies and sociology, I was really aware of the impact of colonialism, like the legacy of it, right? And this is actually what we're talking about walking into the mahogany halls. This is the exact same thing, right? It just plays out through the micro and the macro. Right. But what drew me to, um, to really study that was, was all the, the ways that um, the meta um, impact on our psyche around what does God have to do with this, right? What does the government have to do with this? What did what does my own culture have to do with this, right? So it all kind of wraps up into this question, how do we participate and make things better than how we found them? Mm -hmm. And that's what got me into um, to service projects in Nicaragua. That's what got me into um, working for the Speaker of the House in um, a time when there were mass um, suicides in the state I was in, right? Like it was insane. So there was a lot of scandal. Um, and that's what got me into business school. That's what got me into the army, like actually. Um, so 
so all of those things kind of led me down a path because I had been on service projects and seen that they, um, they are so critical and needed, but I also could see this is kind of a, a funny story. So there I am in Nicaragua with a bunch of Russians and it was part of the structure of the service project that we were half from the US and half from the Soviet Union. That's what it was called then. And we're all um, living with these families in um, a barrio that has no like running water. Um, people are in shacks. The kids have extended um, stomachs. Their hair is kind of tinged red from malnourishment. And it was an, a really fascinating thing because as we landed um, and, and went to the place that we were to go to to get assigned to our families, every family wanted a student from the US. No one wanted a Soviet. Mm. And it was because of money, because in their minds, they were like, if we get a kid from the US and we're good to them and they fall in love with us, then they're, they're gonna, gonna send us money in the future. Yeah. Right. And that really stuck with me. Boy, that's a chapter on its own. Anyway. At the end of the service project, the mom in my family sat me down and she said, this is really sweet that you guys came, <laughs> like cute, right? Yeah. <laughs> but next time stay home and send the money. Yeah. Yep. And that is why I went to business school. So I was like, damn, because they had people who had chemistry degrees. They had people who were attorney. They had skilled amazing intelligent people there but they had no economy yeah oh, yeah it's really really interesting I took a a class in college like my freshman year it was one of the most influence influential classes I took it was a service project to uh the Bahamas but the every our reading leading up to the course and then all during the course and while we were there we talked about how how, how like service in, inherently is like actually not a good thing and like how we just read all these like articles and all these things about how like people don't really want you there and how it's like really for your own ego and like we were unpacking that as we were there and like talking about how this project was like different because we had a long-standing relationship with them and it was just so interesting I think that's like just such an interesting experience to have and something that a lot of people don't think about how like a lot of times doing a service project is actually more for yourself than it is for the community that you're helping anything it's, you're doing is for yourself exactly you yeah that, you were smoking yeah. your own yep 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 our final paper was literally just the question does altruism exist? Yeah. Right about it. Um, a really great plug for a book, Half the Sky by Nicholas Kristof. Um, yeah. Talks oh, a lot. It's one of my, I read it when I was in Cambodia. So that like really tainted my whole experience. Cause I'm like, where is the enslaved prostitution happening? Like I was so <laughs> freaked out. Um, but they, there's a great expert excerpt in that of like a, there was a village that they wanted to, um, uh, help with enslaved prostitution and so they regulated it and then there would be like tours of white people westerners going around being like look how well the town is there's no in you know prostitution and it was all underground and it was so much worse mm -hmm. and um yeah so half the sky we'll put it in the show notes uh highly yeah. encouraged uh if you're inspired by this conversation so so from I need to go to business school because the money is where the change is going to happen to balance integration. How did that, how did that happen? Well, um, so I get into business school and I, um, right when I'm getting out, the economy's in the toilet, like just it, it, it's black Tuesday had just happened. Like no one was hiring. Yeah. And, um, and I land, a temp gig. Like here I'm trilingual. I speak Spanish and Portuguese. I've worked in corporations before. I did service projects in Nicaragua. I've been in the army. I um, worked for the speaker of the house, like all this stuff. I'm Phi Beta Kappa, <laughs> you know, like the whole thing. And I can't get a freaking job. I'm like, <laughs> what? Yeah. Are you kidding me? 
and it was this huge identity crisis. Like I've always been an ass kicker. Like, like, oh my God, now that I don't have a school to define me now. What? <laughs> uh, yeah. I didn't know how to win, but, um, but, uh, which is a big theme, I think for all of us, how do I win? Yeah. How do I and, win? Um, <clears throat> so I, I get this temp job at, um, at Coke and I'm answering the 1-800 line at Coke. Now you don't know this, but at the time they had a couple hundred people with master's degrees who were multilingual answering their 800 line with questions like, I'm pregnant, is, um, is my Diet Coke safe for the baby? <laughs> What's the right, answer? Like, what did you say? Well, here's the thing, or we had this, uh, there were these wackos who would call, and I love this guy, this one guy's name was David, and he lived on the streets in California, and he would call constantly, like a couple times a week, and he was a street person, and, and you could tell he had been let out of an institution, and he was convinced that the Hatfields and the McCoys were, were somehow after Gazueta, who was a CEO at the time. And he would call and just start rambling. And like everyone came to know, oh, I had a David call today. You know, anyway, that's I know. Oh um, my God, I love it. They programmed us how to answer these calls so that it would be legally defensible. So yeah. like the, the programmed response for that kind of question is, um, NutraSweet is the most tested substance ever to be approved by the FDA. Like that was our programmed answer. And it's true. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it's safe. Right. But it's true. It is. Right. The most. So, so, so we had, we had um, a computer and this was back in the DOS days. I know some people don't even know what DOS is, but um, this was back in the DOS days where like everything you had to have an F function and right. You were like looking at code basically, mm -hmm. but we had, um, this, this database that we would, someone would call and we'd go, Oh, that's a ga -ga -ga question. And it would pop up the answer. And you start to know the answers on your own, but, um, but through, through grace, honestly, um, I got scooped up by the guys who ran, um, Eastern Europe and Latin America, and I became their um, assistant. And this was kind of after the new Coke debacle and they were bringing back old Coke before they start calling it Coke again. <laughs> it's so funny. And I really had to ask myself, do I want to sell sugar water to children all over the world? Fair question. I, I'm not, look, look, I have a good friend who right this second is interviewing with Coke and I'm supporting him. So this is not a judgment on anyone. I had to ask that about my life. Yeah. Right. Like, like this is not a judgment on anyone. I just had to say, is that what I, and the answer was no. So when um, a job came up um, with UPS, even though it wasn't global, I jumped at it now. <clears throat> so I start making it through the ranks of corporate America and everything starts to crystallize, right? I start to realize, wow, um, why is it that we can all groom ourselves? We can curate um, our persona. We can get these educations we learn the right language, we carry the right handbag, and this still goes on whether we're working from home or not, right? We're also playing the game, right? With some variations and some wiggle room. So I started to ask myself, why is it that we can all basically be perfectly skilled, fight for these jobs, like die to get them and hate our work? Mm-hmm. Like, why is work a four letter word really has been like the jokes that go around about work, right? 
Drew Carey's like, oh, you hate your job? So does everyone. There's a support group for that. They meet at the bar, right? Like, like it's right. like, that's that's a classic Drew Carey joke, right? right. And so, so the question I started to ask myself was, okay, so if sugar does not fight being sweet, a blade of grass does not fight being a blade of grass. Why is it that humans fight function and contribution? Like, like what is it inherently that, that makes us lose ourselves in this strive to participate in society, right? Mm. Like, like what, it, it's yeah, that, so- That it's needs such, to belong. It's such mm-hmm. a juxtaposition. And um, so that's what led me to eventually quit my job and start yeah. the company, yeah. And how, how was that, you know? So what, so what was the time frame? What was the, what was the, the world like when, you know, uh, a single, I don't know if you were single at the time, but, uh, you know, a single female entrepreneur steps onto the scene in, in the C-suite world. And like, what is that? Is it, is there not, a position? Have you heard this story before? And you're just kind of drawing it no, out now. No. Oh my God. Okay. First of all, <laughs> my mom, my mom who was still alive thought for sure that I was having a narcissistic breakdown. Mm-hmm. Like she, just like, why would you leave your job? This is crazy. What are you doing? Because I was making more money than anyone in my family ever had. Wow. Right. Um, and so she was just like, this is nuts. Um, meanwhile, <clears throat> um, I was crying a lot. And I was praying a lot because I was miserable. And not only that, um, the company I was working for at the time was, um, was AOL Time Warner and they were throwing money at me. I mean, I was getting bonus left and right while they were a mess, right? We had three presidents in like six months. Uh, Fast Company published a story on them at the time that had their, um, their logo at the time was the yellow like stick figure that's walking. Yeah. Um, the, the, the cover title was Dead Man Walking. Wow. Like that's, oh <laughs> that's how bad it was between the AOL Time Warner, like when AOL would talk Time Warner, it was awful. Right. And, um, so, so I'm crying a lot. I'm praying a lot. They're throwing tons of money at me for the first time in my life. I'm really slipping at work. I'll get on a train to go pitch a client. Um, let's say in Philly and the train stop at Philly is pretty short, so you got to be on your guns, right, to get off the train. I would miss the train stop and end up in Delaware. Wow. And I have to hire, a, beg a cab to drive me to wherever in East Nowhere that pharma client was because I was working with a lot of pharma accounts. And, um, yeah, so, so, so I knew that I was slipping. I knew that, um, that I was in a toxic work environment. I had one of the smartest bosses at the time. Her name's not a steerit. I went to her. I was like, how do you keep your head out of the mayhem? And she goes, you know what? Water off a duck. Just do your job. Mm-hmm. Don't let any of this get to you. And that it's so like, that is such a cliche, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, stay in your lane, focus on what's in front of you. Yeah. But what yep. was right in front of me was not satisfying. And even as I focus on what was right in front of me, I realize it's, it's not about all this noise of instability around me. It's what's going on in me. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I'm crying. I'm praying. I'm, I'm, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to quit my job. What am I going to do? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and, um, so, so I get in the, it's funny. We were going to J and J to pitch a deal for baby center. They had just bought baby center. It was a big move into, um, into consumer around, you know, the digital thing and moms mm-hmm. and everything. And, um, we were going to pitch and that morning I decided I was going to quit and I always take a bath, but I got into the shower and I sit and I'm like, God, I'm not acting like me. I sit in the shower and the shower is pounding the back of my heart because my heart just hurts. I'm so scared. And I just knew that the path has always 
appeared. Mm. I just knew it, right? I had a little bit of money saved and I knew the path had always appeared. And so I get, get ready. I take one last look. It's like seven o'clock in the morning. I take one last look out of my window um, in Chelsea. I see the Empire State Building and the sky is gorgeous blue. And I just knew everything is going to be okay today. Mm. And I get on the train. My boss is on crutches. We're still friends to this day. He's on crutches. <laughs> he sprained his ankle. And we go over to to. to to New Brunswick, New Jersey, right? Nothing's open because it's like 7.30 in the morning. And the reason we took a train was because of tunnel traffic and blah, blah, blah. And um, we duck into McDonald's to get some coffee. Now, I don't even drink coffee at the time. And I'm like, I got to tell him now. I got to tell him now. And I tell him, we're sitting in the McDonald's. We've got to go pitch for a couple million dollars. And I'm like, Bob, you got to fire me. I know that there are, are layoffs coming and I, I, I should be one of them. And, and he goes, that's not how it works, Tavis. Those, <laughs> lists, those <laughs> lists have been in the making for forever. I was like, Bob, I'm miserable. I'm too, I got to use myself better. I don't know yeah. how, but, but, but I was cutting hundred million dollar deals for infrastructure in Latin America. I'm pitching banners now. I got to use me more. Right. Yeah. And he's like, um, he's like, well, we're going to try and find you a job. I'm like, just let me go and give my job to that miserable guy down the hall who has kids. <laughs> I tell a story about the miserable guy, but we don't have time for that anyway. <laughs> so, um, so Bob's like, no, no, no. I'm going to call any name some, some muck any mucks at the, you know, who like co-founded AOL He's like, I'm going to call them and tell them how amazing you are. And we're going to get you an interesting job. And I'm like, well, I'm just going on the record here. I want you to fire me. And so I can at least get unemployment. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so we go over and we pitch and we're, we're, we're really starting to set up the PowerPoint and everything. And we're up on the 10th floor and the secretary runs in and she goes, oh my God, oh my God, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. Oh yeah. my God. And we turned and we looked over the tree line because we were on the 10th floor and we watched the second plane hit. Oh my God. And so, so when people ask me what was going on when you were your job, I'm like, the reality is I quit before, but that moment really underscored, right? Yeah. Life is not promised. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The conditions of life are not promised. Yeah. What is promised is we must be present and make the most of what happens in our lives. That is promised. Yeah. Ooh, chills. Yeah. Yeah, it's so fascinating. <laughs> you know, as a as a fellow New Yorker, it's always, always ch ch like bone chilling to hear everybody's retelling of the story. You know, I was eleven in Manhattan. You know, and 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 that I mean, and uh, that so, makes me feel old. Thanks, AJ. <laughs> my pleasure. I, I aim I aim to make you feel old. That's that's the goal. Um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, it's, um, it's, you know, when you hear so many stories, I mean, the fact that you looked up at the sky at seven in the morning that day and we're like, everything's going to be okay. And it was the day that like, nothing was okay for so long. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's oh my God. Okay, no, yeah. no. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's wow. really powerful. Well, I want to make sure that we hear about what you're doing now. So can you take us into that and kind of how that came to be? Oh, yeah. So, um, so, well, money story, right? Here's, here's a money story for you. So get back to, to quote unquote normal um, and AOL and, um, I'm like waiting for something to happen. And my boss's boss comes to me and says, so we're sitting in the hallway. So I had a conversation with Bob. He, he says, you want to leave us? And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, I think you're just, you know, PTSD from the plane sitting. I was like, 
my conversation happened before. I'm not right. idiot. Um, so she tells me to take a month off. Here I am trying to quit. They're laying people off. She tells me to take a, a month off. Right. There's I'm like, no <laughs> I was like, I, I was like, it's not going to change my mind. Call her halfway through. She goes, your mind is made up. Right. I said, yeah. Um, so they give me a package. She's well, no. So she has me into her, her office. And she says to me, I really need you to stick around and close some deals. And for the first time in my life, people, this was my aha moment. If you get nothing else out of this conversation, this is the aha moment. I'm ready. I took, I took care of myself. I said, Perry, whatever is good for you, i.e. is going to make you win, is good for the company and is good for me. I included myself in the equation. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to do. Wow. I got a package. I had an exit day. I got them some freaking money from clients. Yeah. So, so from that, um, I, um, had time, um, and I instinctively, I knew that if I tried to start something just cause, Oh, I got to start something that it wouldn't be coming from my truth that I was still mm -hmm. like, even though I had left the corporate routine, I hadn't readjusted to my own metabolism right I hadn't really settled back into my own flow and I think anytime I, I call it the power of going fallow I am going to write a book on it so if anyone hearing this steals my book title I will come and sit on you and make you regret it um, <laughs> because the power of going fallow is so important anytime you make a transition you cannot create something new from the same energy of what you left mm -hmm. yep Right. Yep. And so, so I, I was really clear that I just had to sit and people would call me, go, Oh, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? You left AOL. And I'd say, I'm sitting and seeking silence. And they just thought I was, nuts. yeah, they're like, I, oh my God, <laughs> God, the demon. but, I, but go ahead. I'm just, I want to pause on that because I, um, as an entrepreneur, that is so valuable. That's such valuable. Mm -hmm nugget of information because we are so uncomfortable in the, I don't know. And um, yes. I love the way that you said it um, because that's what I normally say to people is be in the, I don't know, be okay with the, I don't know. But I love that in the silence and the settling and the sitting. Um, I just think that has like a more graceful way, a more feminine way of um, approaching well, it. I don't know. The way that you put it probably makes a lot more sense. A lot of people, they're like, what, what does sitting and seeking silence mean? <laughs> I love it. I mean, yeah, it's more poetic, but probably scarier. <laughs> well, you're comfortable sitting in silence. I mean, I think that's something you were, you know, you said I was crying and praying you know, most, most yeah. people don't have a prayer practice. Um, but yeah, well, that's so life. Life will teach you out of that lack of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Stick yeah. around long enough. Most of us learn to pray. <laughs> right. Whether it's oh, yeah. to a God or just to what the divine, the universe, right. What are all the words we use? It doesn't matter. <laughs> Right to your dog. Yeah. Oh, I'm cuddle with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, dog is life. Uh, but yes. <laughs> well, no, I totally screwed up. I didn't say what I'm doing now. Oh, yes. Yeah. So sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I please thought, tell us. I just thought that was so valuable. So um, you sat and you were processing and this was after AOL. And now we head into we're slowly. Yeah, I just knew, for me, it's always been about healing the relationship between self and work. That's mm. it. Really simple. If we heal the relationship between self and work, if it stops being oppositional, our whole life improves. This is really simple stuff, right? Um, I didn't know how to do that. I had done a yoga teacher training, and I knew that 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 mindfulness tools and wisdom traditions could be instrumental 
and helping people. And so not knowing what else to do, a, a lot of people, in fact, even old uh, bosses and stuff were like, yoga's gonna boom, why don't you start a yoga studio? And I said, no, oh, that's not my path. You must be no, sick. that's not my path. So, so, um, so I knew that, that it was about the integration of self right? How do I integrate self into everything I do? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I came up with this company name. I talked to a ton of friends. What do you think of this name? And then I set up my first meeting. I went right back to AOL because in the exit interview with the head of HR, she and I spoke and she said, so why are you leaving? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, shared basically a shorter version of this conversation and more work oriented. And I said, you know, there's no reason for us to hate our jobs. And it costs the company money. It costs us our health. There's no reason for it. There's a 24 sevenization. And I coined that term um, there. It was 2001, obviously. I said, there's a 24 sevenization going on. And if there's not room for self at work, then there's no room for self in life. Yep. Mm. And she was like, awesome. She's like, let me know what you're going to do. Like, as soon as you decide what form and shape it's going to do, come back to me. And I did. And they were my first client. And that turned into Google and that turned into Yahoo and um, that turned into Edelman and that turned into Viacom. And over the years, we evolved, right? Because our initial um, entry point was just, let's just do a yoga class, right? It was 2001. I mean, it's 20 years ago. Holy cow, I am old. You're right, AJ. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so, so I didn't know, but while... I was hiring people across the planet and sending them into corporations. I was teaching them how to really emphasize being appropriate in work environments and how crafting a Dharma talk that's accessible and appropriate and relatable to what they go through every day was really key. So we started the corporate yoga teacher training. I took a ton of... I continue to train myself. How do I bring this idea alive in corporate environments? So I studied with um, the marketing chair emeritus at Stanford. He's still a really close uh, pal and mentor. His name is Michael Ray. He wrote a book called Creativity in Business, and he taught it at the business school. It was the top class for 25 years. Wow. He mentored me. I um, have taught that in corporations. I became an executive coach. I studied to become a creativity coach. So all of these things along the way, as corporations would bump into the issues around humanity, um, and gradually become more and more open and receptive to exploring and trying to address them. Um, I was right there to co-create and to craft what are some actions that we can take? And so that became cultural strategy. It became employee experience. And we were doing that 18 years ago. And so now it's suddenly a thing. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's always been a thing. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. Um, Something that I always, that I really admired about you um, and still do is that when, um, I remember we were going to a meeting at KKR and you come in and you're like, yeah, I, uh, I just had like my cello lesson or it was something as a cello or, or voice. yeah, you I were like, a voice lesson. yeah, it was like, I just had a voice lesson or like, do you want to go to Barry's boot camp? Like you were just like, it, it, there was this, this obvious um, desire to keep growing and evolving both personally and professionally. And it was, it was really um, pivotal for me at 20, you know, 28 on the precipice of like finding my self-worth and looking at somebody who I admired and saying, you know, she's, she's curating time in her life to live, Mm -hmm. not just work. Yeah. And that was like impossible for me to imagine up until that point. Wow. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
a lot of people don't. That's one thing I really learned in coaching high performers was um, through the years, we forget that we exist. Um, mm. And I, I, I would sit down to coach a high performer. I, I've worked with them at Disney, Bloomberg, KKR. And um, over the course of even a first conversation, if you um, say, so so what are your sources of joy? Like beyond your family, I get it. You love your kids, right? What are you, where do you go for joy? And so many of us really don't have an answer for that because we've lost access to it. If I ask you, what are your sources of suffering? Ooh, yeah. Let me count the ways. Those yeah. Instantly, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. <laughs> but 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 if I ask you, what are your sources of joy? And so that's that's really a primordial thing. That is our first job. What do you think you're modeling to your kids if you don't have access to joy? Yeah, yeah. What do you think you have available to your partner? If you have not cultivated joy in yourself, come on, this is one-on-one people. Yeah. But I'm going to start asking everybody. I know that question. (laughs) Right. It's really like, like, it's so, it's so much about a perspective shift. Um, So, so I took having coached a couple hundred people, I took all the tools and kind of outtakes from a lot of those conversations. And I packed them into my book, uh, The Game Changer's Guide to Radical Success. And radical does not mean extremist. Radical actually comes from the Latin, from the roots. Mm. So Mm. success from your roots, from who you really are, right? And um, it came out in... uh, late last year. Um, so I'd love for anyone, if you like what this has all been about, like that's, that's actually what the book's about. And I, I'm leading um, masterminds periodically through it. Uh, it is small. It's not a hundred people thing because I want everyone to really have time to see and be seen and hear. Part of what I've learned, right, we're really ooh shiny drawn to top 10 tips and show me the formula and and Mm -hmm. prove to me this is going to work one thing i do know if you work it works right and we forget that like our question is always does it work does it work does it work i'm like if you work it works so this is not a top 10 tips kind of thing it is not a formula it's questions for you to unpack you mm. to operate from what you find. And so it, it, does that work? Yeah. Yeah. If you don't <laughs> work, that's going to work because boom, there's you. So, um, yeah. so, so look me up. I'm um, pretty easily found. I uh, am on Facebook is just me, Tevis Trower. Um, there's also um, an identity for my company. It's balance integration and um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I've got a series of game changer chats of which AJ Walrum was one of my game changers um, on YouTube that you can pull up. There's 22 of them now. I've had CEOs, I've had ex-cons, I've had NYPD detectives, I've had terrified yoga teachers struggling to, to get through the pandemic. I've had just about every type of person you can imagine and it will continue. So yeah, look me awesome. up I'm in touch. Perfect. Um, so we always like to ask all of our guests, um, if you could describe your relationship with money in one word, what would it be? I'm trying to think the right word. Um, okay. Okay. I'm going to do it and you can tell people the visual. That's my relationship with money, right? <laughs> you open your heart and knows you love it. You do love it. And you just want to cuddle with it. Come here, baby. 
that's, that's my hilarious. Release. I think that's, that's the best. I think that's the best one we've gotten. Yep. Sure. Yep. 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 <laughs> um, and then last but not least, um, we love to um, end all of our podcasts saying three things that we're grateful for. So will mm. you um, lead us through that? Mm. Oh, I sure will. I'm grateful for this day. I'm grateful for the breath that moves through my body. And I'm grateful for love in all of its forms. Beautiful. Beautiful. Go ahead, AJ. I'm going to be poetic. You're, you've inspired me to be poetic. I am, um, I am grateful for the, the quiet moments in my day where I'm with Brett and we're just enjoying each other's presence. I'm grateful for snuggles with my dog. So poetic. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity to constantly evolve and grow. Emily. Um, I'm so grateful for this conversation, Tevis. Seriously, I feel like I really needed it and you're so inspiring and I love everything you talked about. I'm really grateful. Um, I'm grateful for like security and safety during this time, both through money and through my living space and just like the ability to feel safe while the world is in turmoil in a lot of ways. And I'm grateful for warm water, baths, showers, very grateful. Drinking it. Drinking it. <laughs> I love it. It was, uh, it was so wonderful having you on, Tevis, and I know that our uh, listeners are going to absolutely love this episode. Thank you all for listening to Everybody's Bad With Money. This podcast was presented by Beyond the Green Coaching. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our website, beyondthegreencoaching.com. Um, have a wonderful morning, rest of your day, afternoon, evening, and good night. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you.